All right. You can turn to Romans chapter 2, starting in verse 17. Romans chapter 2, starting in verse 17. Um, this, uh, Paul is turning to religious people now. And religious people, as I said, are great at, we're great at deceiving ourselves into thinking that unbelievers are the problem because we're clearly, we're clearly inside the family. So, you know, whatever problems we got, it doesn't compare to what they, to what's going on out with those, with those guys out there. Uh, but we'd be wrong, which is what Paul wants to make sure we get. And so to explain this, I'm going to read a section from an unexpected place. I'm going to read a section from the book of 4th Maccabees, which is not a biblical book, but it was one of a whole bunch of books that were written uh, by and for Jewish people who were scattered, you know, all over the Mediterranean in the time between Malachi and Matthew. So in all those several hundred years, Jewish people living scattered far from home, uh, a lot of these books were written uh, to help these Jewish folks in communities all over stay faithful while they waited for their Messiah to come. And so I'm reading this to, to show you uh, as a snapshot of what did Jewish people believe and believe about how to have a relationship with God uh, around the time leading up to when Jesus came. That's why I'm going to read this for you, because it was written around then. So you want to know what people think and believe? You should read what they write. Nowadays, read what they put on YouTube, and you'll get an idea of what people think and believe about things. And I'm going to start with a, a short anecdote. I'll read a short section. Um, but in 4th Maccabees, most of it is this, these stories about people who've died for their faith as a way to encourage Jewish people to stay strong as they're scattered, scattered wherever in foreign lands. And 4th Maccabees focuses on some really bad Syrian guy named Antiochus. And it goes through this... Um, these martyr stories of heroes of the faith uh, who stood firm for their faith to the end. Have you guys heard of the Fox's Book of Martyrs or read some of the stories about Christians who've stood firm in their faith and everything? This is sort of like that. This is like a Fox's Book of Martyrs a long time before Fox ever existed. But I want you to see what, as you read this book, I want you to see what it is that the, these Jewish people clung to as the, the, the core of faithful, believing relationship with God. What is it? So the, the book, it tells the story of a guy named, uh, an older Jewish man, pious, a good guy, great guy named Eleazar. And Antiochus gets it in his head, this evil Syrian dictator, gets it in his head that we're going to force these Jewish people to stop following all their weird rules, sort of like Daniel. So he ordered, it says he ordered the guards to seize each and every Hebrew and compel them to eat pork and food sacrificed to idols. And if they don't do it, they'll be tortured to death and killed. So a whole bunch of people are lined up, but there's this one guy named Eleazar, a priest, a pious guy, and he refuses to submit. That's why it's one of these, like a fox's book of martyrs story. But I want you to see what he says, what Eleazar is, uh, this may or may not be true. It's one of the, it's like a, it's like a story to encourage people in their faith from way back when. Listen to what Eliezer says. So Antiochus says, you know, uh, there's nothing wrong with eating meat. Who doesn't like a good steak? So stop being a weird Jewish person and eat the, eat the meat. And, uh, you know, if your God's really so kind, he'll forgive you, you know, because I'm threatening you with death. He'll understand. So just, you know, 
Stop being such a stickler here and just give in, submit. So Eliezer says this. He says, he says, no, of course. Like, no, never. And he says, to transgress the law in matters either small or great is of equal seriousness, for in either case the law is equally despised. So if I break the law, it's a terrible thing. I couldn't do it. And then he says this. But, talking about the law, the law teaches us self-control so that we master all the pleasures and desires. And it also trains us in courage so that we endure any suffering willfully, willingly. It instructs us in justice so that in all our dealings we act impartially. And it teaches us piety so that with proper reverence we worship the only living God. So he says that as to, you know, why, why won't I break the law? Why won't I do this? Because the law does all these things for us. What's missing? That, that, that's, that's the core of this, this martyr story. That's the core of what this guy thinks about a faithful, believing life. What's missing from all that list of stuff? Love? Well, Christ hasn't come yet, but a belief in the Messiah like Abraham had. He was waiting for the Messiah. Hebrews 11 tells us. This guy, everything's about doing. I mean, it goes on and describes the horrible way he and a bunch of like seven brothers died as well for their faith. But where's the love? Where's what Moses talked about in Deuteronomy 6? Where's the love? The Judaism that had developed by Jesus's day reflected here, it, it taught folks to be good people, to be proper people, to be decent people, how to be honorable people. But it didn't teach them about Rescue, forgiveness, salvation, reconciliation, atonement. There's, there's no love from on high. There's no love reflected back. It's just the law teaches me to be this. It teaches me to be that. It teaches me. Where's the love? Where's the love? That's, the, that's why Jesus was so down on the Pharisees. That's why Jesus said what he said in Matthew 23. That's why there was such conflict because they're like on two different they're like on two different universes here. Jesus believes in the Old Testament, but he interprets it through this lens of love for God, and then, because of the love, all of the, all of the stuff. They interpreted it as, you want to have a relationship with God? you got to do the right thing. Do the right thing. Do the right thing. There's a guy, who, a Jewish man, who wrote a book explaining what the Jewish people believed in the time between Malachi and... and uh, about 100, 200 years after Jesus' time. The book is called From the Maccabees to the Mishnah, and it's, a, it's a, one of those boring books that pastors have in their library. But as he summed up what the Jewish people believed about this time, this is what he said. Uh, this is what he said. He said, Judaism became a religious system that sanctified the life of each individual through the constant observance of the commandments of God. It's a system about doing following the law, doing this stuff. It believes humanity is capable of finding favor in God's eyes. The means to this end are repentance, prayer, Torah study, and good deeds. And this is what we see in the New Testament. That's why Jesus and the Pharisees and the scribes were like always on different wavelengths. They could never speak to one another on the same language because they're coming from two different ways. You can find favor with God. How do you do it? Repentance, prayer, Torah study, and good deeds. That's what the New Testament shows us. 
And that's what Paul is tackling here. Now you say, well, I'm not Jewish and uh, I don't, so what do I care? Uh, it matters because the principle is there are a lot of people who think they're religious who are trying to find favor in God's eyes. That's what the problem is here. And that's what Paul's going to talk about here. How many Christians, how many people who say they're Christians still spend or, or spent years making the same mistake? How do, I, how do I get right with God? Repentance, prayer, Bible study, and good deeds. How many Christians, even though they might not say it like that, that that's what they think it means to have a relationship with God? I tell God I'm sorry when I do something wrong. I pray, I study the Bible, not the Torah, but now everything, the Bible, and good deeds. How many Christians, how many people who say they're Christians think that that, that makes me a Christian? And there's so much there that's good. It's good to repent. It's good to pray. It's good to study the Bible. It's good to, you know, have your faith uh, produce fruit in your life. All that's good stuff. But the most important thing is missing. There's no Jesus. There's no love. There's no I love Jesus because he first loved me. And then because of that, I repent. I pray. I study the Bible. I do Christian-y things to other people so they'll join the family too. There's so much that's so close, but it's wrong because it's missing Jesus. So Paul, in this section today, it won't take long to go through it because it's almost self-explanatory. Paul wants to take a sledgehammer to this idea. Whoever's reading, whoever's listening, if you are counting on anything other than Jesus's righteousness as a gift that, you, that he's offering to you, if you're counting on anything but Jesus's righteousness to be right with God, Paul wants to take a sledgehammer and smash it so that you realize you can only be right with God through Jesus. He's been right with God for you. He's talked to unbelievers. He's talked to um, people who are unbelievers who think they're good people, respectable people. Now he's talking to religious people who've missed the plot, who think that relationship with God is about doing things. So he's talking, to, he's talking to people like us today. I have no idea if this applies to you or not, but the Holy Spirit knows and God knows. Even your spouse might not know, but God knows the Holy Spirit knows. If you are counting on anything other than Jesus' righteousness to make you right with God, Paul wants to smash that to pieces in your life today so that you really realize, maybe for the first time, or maybe you've let yourself forget, he really wants you to realize you're just as much of a sinner. We are just as much of sinners as those horrible unbelievers from Romans 1 that Paul spoke about at such length. We're all sinners. And so we all, whether we're respectable or not respectable, we all just need Jesus' righteousness because none of us are righteous. None of the three groups are righteous. No matter who you are, you need Jesus just as much as the people in the other two groups. So today, we're going to talk about the religious people. And uh, we'll go through the passage, Romans 2.17 to 3.8. Flows very fast. It won't take too long. And his point, his point is pretty clear. It's almost been made already, but we'll see it in a very powerful way here. Romans chapter 2, verses 17 uh, through chapter 3, verse 8. So let's pray, and then we'll, we'll dive in. Dear Lord, we come to you today in Jesus' name. Help us to... Uh, be introspective, to think about our motives, our hearts, our minds, and 
apply your word to our lives as you see fit according to your will by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So he starts off, he is in Romans chapter 2, now he's switching to, he's talking to Jewish people, but he's really talking to religious people. Let's just, let's just do that for our purposes here. And he's imagining a, a Jewish, Jewish people uh, who would have objections. He's imagining Jewish people who would be upset. So Paul's tone is deliberately provocative. Like he, he wants, if you're a religious person, he, as he says what he's about to say, he wants you to be like, hey, wait a minute. He wants you to say, hey, hey. He, he, wants, you to, he wants you to be a little upset. He's doing that on purpose. He wants religious people to get defensive. He's speaking to people who think relationship with God is about doing the right things. I do these things, I'm in. He's speaking to people like that. And he's speaking to Christians, people who say they're Christians, who might not realize that they believe exactly the same thing, no matter what they sing about Jesus. So that's the attitude he comes with. He says in verse 17, Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, and you fulfill all the stereotypes about doing the right thing equals relationship, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law, and boast in God. The law is your, remember we read from 4th Maccabees, the law is your, your anchor, you know, not Jesus. The law is your, 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 your shelter in a time of storm. You rely on the law. You boast in God because you're, you're arrogant about it. Like your attitude is, is, I, I'm a Christian. You're scum. I'm a Christian. You're an unbeliever who does all these awful things, whereas I, I'm a cut above because I'm a Christian. I know the truth. I know the law. I know the Bible. This, this, this attitude, and maybe it's not quite so cartoonish, but that, 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 that attitude is that attitude in your heart. If you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you're instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. He's painting this picture of, you know, if you think you're a, a religious, you think you're a Christian, you think, he's talking to Jews, but, you know, you think you're a religious person. Do you think you know the truth? You think you, you instruct other people about the truth? You, you know what the Word says? You know what the Bible says? You know all these things? You know, if that's, if that's you, if that's you, then you then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? As you, as you spend all this time looking down at outsiders or moralistic good, you know, good people, as you spend all your time thinking of us versus them, have things sort of, have things sort of become stale in your own life and you don't realize that you're a sinner too. Do, do, you, you, you know so much about the Bible. Do you let the Bible speak to you too? Or do you, or do you just use it so you can think about how, how bad other people are? And of course there's a million caveats you can throw in there. But, but that's what he's saying. And of course it's always someone else and not us. But is it you? Is this you? Is this me? Is this us? No, if the shoe doesn't fit, then, then don't do anything with it. But does it fit? That's what Paul is. He doesn't know these people. He's never been to Rome. 
But he knows people like them are, are out there, because they're still out there today. There's always people like that who've managed to, either they never did or they've, they've wandered away and they've gotten to the point where they're better than everyone else because they're religious. They rely on the law. They boast in God. They know the Bible. They know what's good. They know what's bad. They know that I have the truth, and if people would listen, I would tell them, and, you know, but they don't want to listen, so sucks to be them. You know, this sort of, sort of um, holier-than-thou attitude. And Paul says, do you, uh, do, do you, do you let the, you, you, do you teach yourself? Do you read the Bible? Do you let it teach you? Are you introspective? Do you, do you know that you're still a work in progress too? Maybe the, out, maybe, maybe the paint on the outside of your house is really nice and the other person lives in a double wide, but you still got plenty of problems too. They're just different problems. They're not less, they're not more, they're just different. You're a mess too. Do you, do you realize that? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Do you? The divorce rate for Christians is barely any better than, than the, the divorce rate for, out, for people who aren't Christians. Christians have no call to take this moral high ground about how we're better and more, more moral. Is that even a word? Uh, whatever. Anyway, better uh, because we're Christians. We do awful things too. Do we realize that? Do we realize we sin and do terrible things? We can just put a religious spin on it so it doesn't seem quite as bad, but that just makes it worse actually. I mean, do, do, so do we realize that we are not some holier-than-thou people, that we're sinners too? Or is that just something we say and sing about, but it's not really real? Do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? So he's, he's wanting to make you defensive, and he's doing it on purpose, so that you'd start thinking, is this me? Are we exactly the same? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. He's quoting from the book of Isaiah. But the Jewish people by Jesus' day, it wasn't the way it was supposed to be, but by Jesus' day, you read about the scribes and the Pharisees, and you, you get this impression of this exclusivist, intolerant, humorless, legalistic group of people characterized by a lot of standoffishness. That doesn't mean everyone's like that, but the scribes and the Pharisees, the, the, one, of the big, you know, one of the big denominations, so to speak, in the Jewish world, that's what they're like. And so how attractive do you think that is to outsiders? Is that attractive? It's like, well, I want to be a part of this. Does that look attractive? It's not attractive. It makes God look like, it makes God look legalistic, exclusivist, standoffish, and intolerant. That's what makes God look like. How many Christians are exactly the same? Are the people, if, uh, uh, are the people you, if you listen to podcasts and listen to pastors or listen to teachers or have favorite people you listen to or read or, or follow on social media or whatever, um, are the people, are the Chris, Christian influencers in your life are they the same? Are they intolerant, standoffish, exclusivist, holier than thou? Is that the vibe that the people you, you listen to or watch give off? Are the people you listen to and watch, are they more interested in protecting the church from all of them out there? Or are they interested in building bridges out there so more people would join the family? What's, what's the ethos? Is it about, they're coming for your kids, so hide them in, in homeschool forever and don't 
and don't don't ever let them have contact with the outside. Is it is it always about they're coming, they're coming, and sort of building walls and fortresses to keep them out, or is it more is the ethos more about uh, it's really bad out there and we have the answer. We should go out and tell them the answer. There's so much difference between those mentalities. One is fortress mentality. The other is let's go out and tell people this message so they can join the family too. So that's what Paul's getting at. How would God be blasphemed by this attitude of you, you become God's part of God's family by doing the right things in the right way. And if you don't do the right things the right way, you're a terrible human being, and this nasty, angry attitude that you see in the New Testament from the Pharisees and the, and the scribes, how would that blaspheme God? How would unbelievers look at that and God be blasphemed? Probably in the sense that people who look at you would say, I don't want anything to do with this God of yours if he's like you. That's the sense in which God's name, I think, is being blasphemed by Jewish people who are like this, by religious people who are like this. You're representing God. You're a terrible representative if this is what you're like. To the extent that you're like this, you're a bad representative. And you're blaspheming God because that's what they see. So that's what he's asking. You who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Do you dishonor God by breaking the law? So now, in verses 25 to 27, he starts attacking the most important thing to them. If you think that relationship with God is about doing the right thing in the right way, if you're a Jewish, if you're a Jewish person, the most important thing you can do is to be circumcised, to have this external mark that shows you're Jewish, and then do all this stuff. Got to do all this stuff, and especially this thing, to really show that you're, that you're, that you're uh, a true believer. The ultimate thing you can do is that. And so he says in verses 25 to 27, he says, you know, all of that's point. Circumcision doesn't matter. Uh, external things don't matter if you keep breaking God's law. And he says to these legalistic people, so then if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? What he's saying is there's a whole bunch of people who aren't believers at all who follow the law better than you because they've accepted Jesus. And that's so offensive. Jesus told them, told the scribes and Pharisees, you know, there's a whole bunch of people that repented in Nineveh who are going to be with me one day at the judgment seat, and you guys are going to be out in the cold. How offensive do you think that? If your whole life is built on we're Jewish people, so we're special, we're different, we're better, and because we do all these things and we do them really well, and everyone else who isn't like us is scum. And then Jesus tells you, yeah, a whole bunch of pagan Assyrians from Nineveh are going to be with me one day. And you guys aren't going to have any part in my family because you're a bunch of legalist hypocrites. How angry would that make you? In Matthew 12, 41, Jesus said the Nineveh comment. And in Luke chapter 13, verse 28, he talked about this great image of this great dinner banquet that he's going to have with everyone who's a believer when his kingdom is here. All this imagery of revelry and uh, sitting down and having a meal because it's all over. It's all over. And he says, they, he says to these same people, um, there will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are thrown out. 
And he says, people will come from the east and the west and the north and the south, and they'll take their place in the kingdom of God. A whole bunch of outsiders are going to be have seats there, but not you, because you've missed the entire thing. There's no love. There's no Messiah who's come. There's only the law teaches me to do this. It teaches me to be this. It makes me into this. It's all about doing. Where's the love? I desire mercy and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. I don't want all these list of things you've done. I want you to love me and then do all the things because you love me. It's not, it's not the other way around. So that's what Paul says there when he says there's a whole bunch of people who are not Jewish, but they keep the law better than you because they believed in, in Jesus who's already kept it for you. Verse 27, the one who's not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who, even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. And this is what he's getting at here. Who is a true believer? Who is a true Jewish person? Is a true Jewish person the one with the right blood or the one who obeys the list? Who is a true Jewish person? A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly. Nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew, a Jewish person, a true child of Abraham, who is one inwardly. And circumcision, it's not an external thing, it's a circumcision of the heart, by the spirit, not by the written code. You spend all your time making sure that you, you get the checklist right and you've done this done that and you've done this and you've done that and Paul says you know a real Jewish person is one whose heart belongs to God an, an inward mark on your heart that's who a true Jewish person is so being Jewish has nothing to do with it whether your heart belongs to Jesus that's what makes you a believer that's what makes you a believer. And so he's telling these people, everything you built your entire life on is a lie. He's taken a sledgehammer and smashed it to pieces. All of it's a lie because you've missed everything. Is your heart, does your heart belong to God? Is there love? He loves you, so you love him, like Moses said in Deuteronomy 6, that Jesus agreed with in Mark 12, 28 and, and following. Is there love, or is it just a bunch of rules you follow really well? Which one is it? And so Paul spent so long going to synagogues, telling the same message. He has so much experience with people heckling him or asking questions. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 8 will be real quick because there are three questions that he repeats as though someone is asking them to him because he's heard them so many times. These common objections he always, get, he always gets, and they're sarcastic objections. And he throws them out here and answers them really, 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 really briefly. The first objection. Um, what is, so read these in a sarcastic tone of voice, because this, this is what Paul asks. He's, he's pretending like this is what they say after I say this. They say this, and then he'll answer. And then they say this, and he answers. So they're asked in a sarcastic way. Well, what advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? If all of that's true, if doing all these things doesn't get you anywhere with God, I guess there's no point in even being Jewish. I guess it doesn't matter. I guess the law doesn't matter at all. I guess it's all pointless. Isn't that true, Paul? Isn't that true? I guess it, none of it means anything. 
And Paul says, no, um, the Jewish people were entrusted with the message of God and they were supposed to bring it and keep it intact until Jesus came. So it's, it's great to be a Jewish person, but you, you need to be a real Jewish person and believe this message you're supposed to have been preserving. But you haven't been preserving the message. You preserve some other message about working to earn salvation. Verse 3, another sarcastic comment. Well, what if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? They're asking, you know, if, if we've really missed it so badly, I suppose God's just going just gonna to walk away from us, huh? Our whole, our whole gener for generations, we, we, we've been taught this, and you just come along and say we've suddenly got it all wrong. Well, I guess, uh, I guess God's just done with us then since we've all missed it so bad, and you, you just happen to know the answer. Isn't that what you're saying, Paul? And he says, no, God is faithful. Let, every, let God be true and every man uh, be, be a liar. God keeps his promises. He's made promises. He's going to keep them. But you, you have to believe the real message. Jesus has been faithful for you. Jesus has been righteous for you. All of that. So God isn't, it's not that everyone in society has missed it, so God's just going to walk away. God is going to have mercy and justice and all that, but he's going to keep his promises. Just, you need to actually believe the real message here. You've missed the message. The last one in verse 5 is the most sarcastic one because it's so dumb. Um, Verse 5, again, read this as, as comments Paul's gotten before in tons of synagogues all over the Mediterranean. Well, if our righteousness brings out God's, if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? It's a sarcastic comment. If, if us being so bad makes God's righteousness in the gospel shines so bright, then isn't it a good thing that we keep being so wrong about everything, Paul? Isn't that what you're saying? And of course, it's ridiculous. And Paul basically responds by saying, you know, certainly not. Like, come on, give me a break. And he, he explains a few things. And at the end, he says, you know, their condemnation is just. Fools who think like this, you're not even a serious person. I can't even talk to you right now. That's not what I'm saying. He's gone through three, three different groups of people. He's talked to people who are just blatant unbelievers who don't care about God one way or another. He's meaningless. He's talked to people who think of themselves as very good and upright people last week. Not believers, but they think of themselves as middle-class, solid, more respectable people, moral people. And now he's talked to religious people who've missed the plot, who think relationship is about doing. He's gone through all three people, and in every case, he's tried to take a sledgehammer and knock it down and say, no, you need Jesus just like they do. You all, we all need Jesus. None of us, are, none of us come with a built-in handicap that gives us a leg up. We all need Jesus. So I want to read, I want to, read to you a excerpt from that book that I quoted at the beginning about what um, Judaism believed at that time. It was written by a Jewish guy. It's a scholarly book written by a Jewish scholar. And he wrote something very sad in the, you know, the dedication part in the book. And this is what he said in the book. Um, 
He said, according to rabbinic lore, when a person comes before the heavenly tribunal after his death, he's asked, did you conduct your trade honestly? Did you set aside time for study of the Torah? Did you raise a family? My father, the author said, my father lived his life in such a way that he could answer all those questions in the affirmative. In business, he had a reputation as a man whose word could be trusted. Every morning before going to work and every night before going to sleep, he would sit in his favorite chair and study a Jewish book. I miss him, and I dedicate this book to his memory. The reason why that was so sad to me is because he's doing exactly what Paul just spent time saying is wrong. His dad sounds like a great guy, a good man, right? And he's, he dedicated the book to his dad. But what did he say makes his dad so good? He's a Jewish man, and the author said, you know, according to the... According to rabbinic lore, you know, if you are honest in your business, you study the Torah, raise a family, try and live a good life sort of thing, then uh, if you can answer that, if you can answer yes to those, then you're good. He's making the exact same mistake that his whole book was, his whole book was about what Jewish people believed back in those days, and he concluded you, that you can earn favor with God by repentance, prayer, Torah study, and good deeds. And here, this man is, he wrote the book, the first edition in 1986, and the dedication, he praises his father because his father embodied all of those things. But what's so sad is, that's not going to get him anywhere. Isn't that sad? His father sounds like a good man, but he'd missed everything because there's no love, there's no salvation, there's no atonement, there's no, there's no Messiah. There's only, look at what I've done. That's what he said his dad had. The man still, this man, the son who wrote the, the book, he's still alive, probably would still say the same thing about himself. And that is exactly what Paul spent all that time saying no to. It's what he spent all that time taking his sledgehammer to. And what's so sad is this author knows that. Because in the book, he's like, this Jewish understanding of gaining favor with God is obviously different than the Christian interpretation. He knows. And he still misses it. Deuteronomy 6 seems to just not be there. Love the Lord your God with everything you have. Trust in his promises of the Messiah and be, have, be, be counted to be righteous. It's all missing. It's all gone. He's exactly who needs to hear this message that Paul's saying. What are, what are you counting on when you come before the heavenly tribunal? Jesus says it's got to be him and only him. His love for God, his perfect obedience, his atonement, his defeat of Satan. Because none of the stuff you or I can do can ever overcome our unlove for God, our disobedience, the criminal charges laid against us for everything we think and do, and the fact that Satan has us in his power unless someone rescues us from him. That's what the author of that book had missed. That's what the people Paul's writing to, for whom the shoe fits, that's what they missed. How many of us are missing the same thing? Anything other than Jesus for righteousness 
is a false front and Paul wants to knock it down. Will you let him knock it down in your life? Let's pray. Dear Lord, we come to you today in Jesus' name. Help us to only trust in you for salvation. Help us to only trust in this righteousness from God that belongs to your Son that you give to people who pledge allegiance to you, who believe in the good news. Help us to believe in it. Help us to be, help it to be real for us and help us to never, never boast in ourselves, but only boast in you and your love and faithfulness through Jesus and his message. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank mm-hmm. you.